Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Live from the Dolby Theater in Los Angeles, it's the 87th Annual Academy Awards. And here's your host, Kion Wolf. Thank you, thank you. The orchestra pit sounds great. For now, just don't make me send J.K. Simmons into the pit. <laughs> Tonight we will honor the most outstanding work done in the past year by white actors. <laughs> Too soon? Of course, this year, everybody's talking about Boyhood, a feature film made over the course of 12 years, almost double the length of a typical Oscar awards show. <laughs> and how about Birdman? In the course of two hours, Michael Keaton has hallucinatory conversations with a costumed flying man, runs naked through Times Square, and shoots off his own nose in front of a packed house. Or as Matthew McConaughey calls it, Thursday. <laughs> This year, we saw Matthew in Interstellar, which probed one of the deepest questions in physics. What if one of his Lincoln commercials was somehow three hours long? <laughs> Let's see, who else is here? Reese Witherspoon. She went right down to the wire over whether to wear Dior or REI. <laughs> over the course of this evening, you're going to see a lot of people clap when... Go away! Kion, are you hosting the Oscars again? I'm perched on that fine line between a dream and a delusion. Didn't you see Silver Linings Playbook? Don't you want to come downstairs and join the rest of us at the Oscar party? You mean just regular people? Why would I do that when I'm up here you know, on stage and Natalie Portman and John Hammer in the audience cracking up over how cute and funny I am? Hi, John. Call me. They're figments of your imagination. We're real. I know. That's what I hate about you. <sighs> We'll work this out while the rest of you listen to the nose. And now he's still paranoid that his vote for Gloria Swanson wasn't counted. <laughs> Colin McEnroe. Thank you so much. Yeah, it was, I think, 1930. Uh, one of the first times I voted in the Academy Awards. All right, so um, we're going to talk about the Oscars, the Academy Awards today. We've got the movie mavens, cinephiles are here for you. And we also want to hear from you as we go along, 860-275-7266. Meanwhile, from the Culture Dogs, uh, a WWUH radio show about exactly this sort of thing. Are you doing a live show for... Yeah, I, I was normally I have a party in my domicile, but this year I'm going to go on on the air. All right, that's Sam Hatch along with Kevin O'Toole. They are the Culture Dogs on WWH. So will that be at 8 p.m. on Sunday night? It will. Yeah. All right. So we'll be talking about the red carpet. You know, best dress, worst dress, that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Well, you guys will be worst dressed. Absolutely, we always win that every year. Also with us, uh, she uh, now runs her own business. It's called Omusono. I actually bought a lot of Christmas presents from Omusono this year. Uh, and so you can go to omusono.com. Am I saying it right, Omusono? You're, you're good. I'm nailing it, right? Yeah, I'm good. killing it, all right? You're Viv- Vivian Nabetta here is here with us. We never do the Oscar show without Vivian Nabetta. And j- joining us also, James Haley from Trinity Cine Studio. Of course, we've got to have James uh, for this. So I'm just going to start. I- I'm going to throw out um, my uh, an impression that I have. But I can't tell whether it's an accurate impression, whether it's tied to my mood, 
the snow. But I just remember last year, James, you know, as I, as I beheld the Academy Award nominations and sort of looking at these performances in the movies, and it, re- it really was, you know, 12 Years a Slave and American Hustle and Philomena and Her and Dallas Buyers Club and I'm leaving something. Oh, Nebraska, a movie I really sort of really kind of grew on me. I thought this has been a really great year in movies. I mean, it's like even, even given that the Academy Awards has its own highly fetishized idea of what the best movies are, even factoring for that, these are some really good movies. And even though there's some movies that I like quite a bit in this field, I don't feel the same way here in 2014, but I can't tell whether it's – or 2015, really. But I can't tell whether it's just the piles of snow or the piles of crap on the movie screen. So which, which one is it? <laughs> it's a general enemy <laughs> induced by the snow. But I, I think I sort of have that feeling too. I mean I have – I find the films that this year, they're interesting definitely. And I mean I really enjoyed Birdman for example. But I also have sort of things about it that, that trouble me. Uh, it's not that significant a movie really. It's kind of like a navel-gazing movie in a way <laughs> but a really good one. Uh, but, but still navel-gazing. And uh, it seems like large issues of distance. It's, it's almost like, okay, been there, done that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this year isn't going to be like that, and so we'll look at other things. And um, I think that uh, the, these things do go in cycles. I can tell you from programming movies, certainly, that, that some years you just have sort of this whole package of films waiting to be shown, you know, that you think are really significant, really important films. And uh, in it, it, I'd say more sort of like it, it's gone away from the real world to kind of the entertainment conceit of Hollywood kind of thing in a way. That's where it seems to have gone this year. And and to me, it's it's interesting as an insider, really, as a film programmer, but maybe not so much real world. Okay, so uh, Vivian, you're less of an insider, but you do make these long enforced marches and try to see all of these movies. So how did it leave you feeling at the end? Um, well, I kind of felt like... For me, it was the year of movies I really wanted to like. Mm. You know, you go in and you're like, everyone said this is great and wonderful. And you're like, it, it, was, it was nice. And <laughs> I'm like, I, I sound like my mom. That's what she, It was nice. <laughs> you know, I enjoyed it. And you really wanted to like them a lot more than what you did, um, especially since considering the topics and some of the things that were discussed. You should have left the movie theater in tears or have called your therapist. A lot of movies, I kind of, I enjoyed it. I feel like a smarter, better person, but, eh. uh, uh, Name a movie in particular that kind of left you feeling that way. Oh, God, I don't want to say it because I feel like a terrible person saying it. (laughs) You're going to say Selma. No, No? I'm going to say The Theory of Everything. Please don't kill me, public (laughs) radio audience. Please don't kill me. No, I I don't think people, a lot of people feel that way. And I thought the, I mean... Eddie Redmayne, obviously. I'm just going to say it now. I think he's going to win. But um, I just felt like it was a good movie, mm-hmm. I guess. And I enjoyed learning about Stephen Hawking. But I didn't feel like I wasn't as emotionally connected as I felt like I should be mm-hmm. for that kind of a movie. Um, what about you, Sam? Are you a, a happy culture dog this year? I, I think I actually connected a little more with the films this year than I did the previous year. Though they all do fall under the same umbrella for me is that there's not that one clear contender. There's not that killer app, that film that that really just jumped above uh, and, and beyond all the others. And I think there's this this type of film that the Academy is looking for. And if they don't have a clear winner that fits that, then they have a bunch of other 
like you mentioned, very good films, but mm-hmm. not particularly uh, the most amazing things you've seen in the year. And it, it, they're not definitely not going to give something like Guardians of the Galaxy that did connect with audiences <laughs> incredibly in this huge kind of zeitgeist way. Uh, they're not going to give that an award. So in this case, they're just going to give you know, the award to a, uh, like a handful of films that, that did the job but didn't particularly uh, – you know, hit the mark, maybe. If, if you were an Academy voter, would you have voted for Guardians of the Galaxy had you had that opportunity? For Best Picture? <laughs> I, yeah, I, I, don't, I think Interstellar, maybe, over Guardians of the Galaxy. Uh, I would have voted for yeah. Interstellar yeah. myself. Yeah. You would have for, yeah. for Best Picture? Yes, absolutely, yeah. I yeah. would. I think that Interstellar is a film that took on huge issues, and it also took on what, to me, is the nexus of cinema, which is good writing and a story mm-hmm. and also a sense of the emotion that that can convey about sort of about loss, about disconnect. There were so many themes, so many large themes in that movie that Christopher Nolan sort of, <clears throat> you know, I always felt that about the Batman Dark Knight trilogy that he took on the incredible dysfunction of the Batman character as yes. for real. Yeah. All of a sudden, it wasn't a comic character; it <laughs> was for real. And uh, and Inception uh, was disturbing in a way that. Um, you had to sort of pay attention to it, and it made you really think about the story and, and mm. want to know, did this all really connect? Did I it love work? that movie. Yes, I, I loved love Inception, and, and I found Interstellar to be a film that was intellectually and emotionally at a nexus that should be, to me, was the transport of cinema that took me to that place. Mm. So certainly I would have voted for that. As James knows, I hated Interstellar with the power of a thousand <laughs> black holes. Oh. Um, and, and I thought in particular it failed to make emotional sense. Um, That's how I, I felt about Tree of Life. Well, yes. Well, I understand, I understand that. And, but, but here's the thing also. I think every year we, we kind of go through this paroxysm a little bit every year where there are these movies that, that in which we have invested a lot of – uh, of belief and faith in them as artistry. And we sort of understand they're not going to win Academy Awards, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I I really did feel Tree of Life was by far the best movie that year. But I also understood that that was, I mean, it was craziness. It, it was craziness even that it was a, a nominated <laughs> film, you know, that that it was being under, thought about that way. I, I understood that. And so we, and I, I feel like for some of us this year, and, I, I, you know, a little bit for James and definitely for me, um, that the Grand Budapest Hotel is surprisingly, I mean, a movie which I really do think is the best movie I saw all year. I've seen it three times. I'm just getting warm, warmed up. Uh, and the idea that it, I don't know, it probably is sort of like around fourth or fifth place right now. Yeah. You know, it's not <laughs> the top two and it's probably not even the top three. But, I mean, it's not this, it's not Tree of Life, which was like the, the least likely film to win in its year. I, to me, that's, I find that a little surprising and pleasantly surprising. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I certainly would uh, say Grand Budapest Hotel would be a great winner, really, uh, for lots of reasons. But one of the things is a sort of zeitgeist of the world uh, at the time time of now in that Stefan Zweig, uh, who wrote the original story that that film is from, that Wes Anderson adapted, um, it's it's really, uh, he was uh, living in Austria at a time when he saw himself living as a relatively sort of stable, happy life and failed to see the dangers of Nazism coming. And then he wrote very eloquently about how the the destruction that was coming and how he and of course he escaped and went elsewhere and came to the United States. But he wrote a story really that was about um, the very thing that many Hollywood movies are about, which is 
reassurance. Most movies, a lot of movies that become mainstream are about reassurance and at the end of the time you, when you've finished watching the movie. But uh, Grand Budapest Hotel is not. It's about an observance of a sort of don't be too reassured, really. <laughs> and so I'd say uh, absolutely, um, you know, that that is one of my favorite movies. Uh, I mean, I like Wes Anderson, but I think that's a remarkable film. Um, Vivian, so we know a little bit about uh, what Sam's struggle would have been uh, between Guardians of the Galaxy and Interstellar with Interstellar winning out. James probably also Interstellar uh, with some uh, props to Grand Budapest Hotel. What about you? What was the movie you loved this year? I mean, we know that there are a lot of movies where you went, that was nice. Uh, what was the? Was there a movie that really just sort of turbocharged you? No. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. But what no. if you had to? What if no. you were an Academy voter and you had to vote for one of these? Um, you know what? Let's let. I think let's be honest. We know they don't watch all the movies anyway. They're all in the industry. They don't watch. They go, oh, I, I'd probably go, hey, um, Jim Templin, who are you voting for? And then I would just pick what he would pick. No, which you is wouldn't. what happens. You would not. <laughs> so, so there wasn't there really even in this field of eight or nine or whatever it no. is. There isn't really one. No, and I, I feel, again, I feel really bad about it because, again, considering um, a lot of the subject matter, a lot of the great performances, I would have liked to have been more passionate about it. Um, I do have to admit, I haven't seen Wild yet, which maybe if I'd seen it before it's not the show. For this, not nominated well, for this picture anyway. you know, Reese Witherspoon, you know, kind of feel like it's her moment, mm. you know, so, but... Um, you know, no, I feel bad. I'm, I'm, I'm the Grinch that stole the Oscars today. Well, you know, since you bring up Wild, there's something that I did want to talk about, and it wasn't in any of the emails that I sent to you. Because oh, no. I did, a wild card. A wild card. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because I didn't really start thinking about it until this morning. And so, and what I was thinking about is a trend that I think started in the 1990s and then really started to become kind of a problem, if it is a problem, uh, subsequently in, in, in this century. Um, and it is that... The, I went back and looked at the kinds of performances that were nominated, let's say in the 1950s we know, and, and early 1960s. And we know from watching Mad Men that women were not empowered during that time. That, you know, so you would think that their performances would be kind of marginalized. And so, but I looked, for example, at, I mean, I cherry-picked a little bit here. So in 1958, Susan Hayward won for I Want to Live. Uh, she was up against Shirley MacLaine for Some Came Running, Rosalind Russell uh, for Auntie Mame, Elizabeth Taylor for Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. There was also Deborah Kerr's performance in Severed Tables. One of the rules here is there's, there's always a Deborah Kerr, Deborah Kerr performance that I don't remember. But, um, but, I mean, those are all movies that a lot of people saw. You know, those were movies that were part of the mainstream cultural dialogue. And, and just to continue the, on the same theme, uh, so uh, in 1960, two years later, uh, Liz Taylor's up again, this time for Butterfield 8. I think she won. Greer Car Garson, Sunrise at Campobello. Deborah Carr again for The Sundowners. Shirley MacLaine again for The Apartment. Melina Mercury for Never on Sunday. Most of those movies also were mainstream movies. Those were performances that a lot of people saw. You didn't have to have some boutique highly fetishistic taste <laughs> to find those movies, you know? And then you sort of look in recent years, you look this year, it's Marianne Cotillard for Two Days, One Night, Felicity Jones, Theory of Everything, Julianne Moore for Still Alice, uh, everybody knows she's going to win, Rosamund Pike for Gone Girl, Reese Witherspoon for Wild. I would say of that group, Gone Girl is the only movie yeah. that falls into that that's category, right? right? Yeah, you know? that's absolutely. It. And that, that's my favorite performance out of that bunch, too. I mean, Rosamund Pike, I've always been oh, a fan really? of hers going back for, you know, until her Bond film in 2002. Uh, but, 
I don't know. That film captivated me. I actually feel bad that it was left out. I'm a big David Fincher fan, and yeah. I was disappointed that you didn't get a, at least a nod for director. Uh, but no, that, that's the one that I'm, I'm on, you know, firing on all thrusters for. So hopefully, I, I look back a few years to 2011. Meryl, Meryl, Meryl Streep won for The Iron Lady uh, as Margaret Thatcher. Glenn Close was up for Albert Knobs. Yeah. Uh, Viola, Viola Davis was up for The Help. Rudy Mara, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Michelle Williams, My Weekend with Marilyn. You know, again, these, for the most part, you know, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo and The Help, those were ma- mainstream movies. But, you know, a lot of movies that people kind of don't see or the, yeah. you'd have to seek yeah. them out either because you yeah. want to see women in, a, in, a, in an important leading role or you're just, you know, somebody like us who sees a lot of movies. And, and I don't know, James, what's going on there? Well, I, I think there's a lot of things going on there. Um, one is the natural sort of like natural in quotes, uh, ironic quotes of Hollywood, uh, <laughs> you know, in terms of roles and what is seen to be an important role and what sort of gets given to women or to a black person. You know, it's, it's like a, the, 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 there's a sort of um, there's a kind of backward orthodoxy to Hollywood that still exists as strong as ever witness the nominations this year. Um and I think that's part of it. But there's also another thing that I think that uh, films are somewhat marginalized uh, in many cases and people don't get to see them. If you look at Oscar nominees from the 60s, say, you're looking at a time when people did gather in large crowds and go to movies mm-hmm. and see these things together. And now you're to, to fast forward to now – People are seeing films in different ways. They're not necessarily seeing them in theaters, for example. Um, they're not necessarily wanting to see them right away. They see them later. And one of the uh, classic examples, um, I mean, you're talking about how the Academy of Voters don't see all the films. Well, I think a worse thing in a way is that, that, well, that's the worst, is not seeing mm-hmm. it at all. But then the next worst thing is seeing it on the DVD or the Blu-ray that mm-hmm. they send to them and seeing it on a screen by themselves, maybe eating a pizza, you know. Fast-forwarding. Fast-forwarding. <laughs> yeah. yeah, watching it at yeah. double speed. Yep. And, and Which I would really <laughs> advise you do with Interstellar. But anyway. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I'll get back to you later on that one, <laughs> Colin. But continue. Uh, but, but it's something that I think is a shame because – if you don't see some of the nominees this year, if you don't see them on a large screen in the mm-hmm. dark with a group of other people, it's a different experience from seeing it on a small screen in, in your home or on a cell phone, for heaven's sake. Whatever, however all these alternate media are, it has the effect of sort of diluting the experience. It's not shared at the same time. And so I don't think that's one of the reasons why the Oscars don't have the same significance they had. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that we're we're at a, a different place, and so it may be that, for instance, Wild, which I think is a great film, and and it's very interesting what you know Reese Witherspoon has done with this, and and her, what she said about it. I think that's a film that really a lot of people would go to see, mm-hmm. and it's now just sort of getting noticed. But the fact is that not many people have seen it yet; they've heard about it. And that's sort of like a theme for the for the period. Yeah, but, all I hear from my friends are, I've never heard of any of these films. Whenever the Oscar <laughs> exactly, nominees right. come out, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, well, especially for you, the women. Oh, yeah, go ahead. I said, could you argue also too, to a certain degree, that communal experience, while it's it's great, um, people have more options, and because people have more options in media, movies that wouldn't have gotten seen 
um, are now able to be seen a little bit more, or because That's we, true. or that people who you know don't go to the movies for whatever reason it is, they do have an option to at least be part of that experience in a different way. Yeah. So maybe playing devil's advocate a little bit that but, but the films they're there's watching a downside are, uh, and there's an upside to that. The, the films they're watching that that they wouldn't normally see are all uh, straight to video Netflix films now. That's all uh, all of the, uh, the the kind of uh, bulk of films that I know people are watching yeah, now yeah, are things point. that you're just yeah, yeah that would just be sitting on a store shelf in the background in the video store. Ten that's years right. ago. I miss doing that though. <laughs> that Don't you miss it? You would go and you'd find like yeah. a sequel of a movie that yeah. you're like, they made a second one. Right. Well, but I, but I think yeah. that, that that's one of the sort of paradoxes here. That I mean, for instance, digital cinema has made it less expensive mm -hmm. for small filmmakers, meaning filmmakers without a big financial backing, to make uh, interesting films, um, and it's sort of turned filmmaking into something very different and so it means yes they have access but of course with the fragmentation of the market how many people actually see it yeah. mm -hmm. and um, especially also that they don't see it at the same time and so it can be very difficult to get real notice you know or to get a lot of people to see it your friends might see it you might get an article you might get something online that tells people to see it, but it's not the same as that large coverage. That yeah, there's would, no groundswell. There's no groundswell, yeah. and it's very hard to achieve that. And I find that a sort of a paradox with the, you know, the the sort of leveling effect of opening the industry by having a less expensive way to get in, and it's brought in these people, but it hasn't brought in the way to get those films seen. And I, I do th think that the phenomenon that you're describing sort of means that. Uh, and, and I don't know how this sorts itself out, what invisible hand does this. So you have Julianne Moore in Still Alice, which is this tiny little movie. Uh, it's about uh, early onset Alzheimer's disease, uh, therefore has a pretty self-selecting, highly specific audience. I mean, it just isn't intended to be a blockbuster. There isn't anybody involved in the process. I'm sure a lot of the actors on it work for scale and all that kind of stuff. Um, and, and it, you know, back to what you were saying, you know, uh, Vivian, so... We have a process now that allows a movie like that to be discovered and cherished enough so that she's a shoe-in for the Oscar <laughs> for this movie, really, that not very many people are going to go see, which, you know, in some ways, I think you're right. I think that's great in a way. But it also it makes me think, you know, back to that time when, you know, Shirley MacLaine was really great in the apartment and some came running and, like, everybody saw those movies. Too. It just seems yeah. weird now that the and it's particularly true for these women's performances. You know that that the people who see them, it's a much narrower subset, and it's like the studios don't even feel like they have to build the movie, build it up, make it that big. It's almost uh, a, a business card for a, yeah. for a best actress nomination. That's yeah. yeah. There's been films like Vin Diesel notoriously made a film and, and screened it at uh, Sundance that was really never meant to be seen as, as a film. It was just a business card to get him more acting jobs. Uh, so there's those <laughs> what, films. What that movie was this? Uh, I forgot the name Triple of it. Triple X, it was it was part like two. The one that created the artistic cachet around It's basically what got him uh, Saving Private Ryan, uh, whatever landed him that gig. Well, he, he had a previous film that it was just all about him, starring him, directed by him. Because oh, I, yeah. I do remember him from Boiler Room. Is he in Boiler Room? Yeah, Boiler Room, yeah. Boiler Room. Really I love that right. film, yeah. And he's really good in Boiler Room, too. You sort of wish he would do more movies. Movies right. like that because he actually yeah. he can do them. All right, we're wandering far afield, but that's a good sign, not a bad <laughs> sign. Why don't we take a quick break here? We'd love to hear from you too. 860 
And we're back. We're talking about uh, the Oscars. We'd love to have you uh, chime in if you have uh, grapes or things that uh, made you very happy. Uh, give us a call, 860-275-7266, or some app or that doesn't fall into either one of those categories. 860-275-7266. You may tweet us at WNPR Colin. Our vast research department was able to determine that the movie, the Vin Diesel artistic cachet movie that Sam Hatch was talking about, Sam being one of 186 people who actually saw this movie, <laughs> Uh, it's called multifacial. <laughs> multifacial. So seek that out for wherever. I don't know. I bet Streaming, it's, maybe. It's, yeah. Yeah. I don't think it's not yeah. going to be on Netflix. There you go. Yeah, maybe it's going to be that on YouTube. That big bin in the Walmart. <laughs> <laughs> yes. At the right. bottom of the bin. Yeah. Right. So, Sam, I want to talk about something that you brought up because I think it's really interesting, which is, the, the you know, Stephen Hawking may have a theory of everything. And if so... I assume it includes this, the kind of sort of wave effect of approval and disapproval that precedes the Oscars. And, and I'll give you I'll give an example that you didn't bring up in your email, which is like today I'm probably finally going to go see Foxcatcher. Mm-hmm. Um, now, but what I've really done is wait through a very complicated <laughs> process in which Foxcatcher was one of those movies that was anointed very early on as, you know, real Oscar bait and, you know, Steve Carell and Channing Tatum and Mark Ruffalo and Bennett Miller's the director, and boy, this is going to be just racking up nominations and stuff. And I just, I, since I didn't see it right then because I wasn't playing in Hartford yet, then I sort of watched the wave completely change, <laughs> yeah. and all these people kind of came forward and said, you know, this is kind of a meretricious piece of junk, actually. You know, but not enough people said that to deprive Bennett Miller of one of the coveted Best Director nominations, so that the director of Selma, for example, who a lot of people think should be in there, is not. Um, but there's this thing, right, that you, you were trying to describe it, too. You, I'm sure you can do a better job than I did. Yeah, I, I, I kind of equate it with cultural speed up, that the situation where uh, – whereas even – maybe even so 10 years ago, you could you know, capably predict the film that was going to be you know the big front runner late in the year. And that now uh, the, the public opinion keeps changing uh, so drastically. And um, magazines like Entertainment Weekly are, are part of it where they usually anoint, as you mentioned, something uh, early on, maybe even as early as June, as the Oscar contender. The, the the film to watch out for. And I remember it happening to The Lovely Bones. I remember it happening to The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. And those films came out and were dropped like a hot potato. And this year, Gone Girl, well, you know, being an early one, there was a cover story on EW. That's going to be uh, David Fincher's Oscar grab. And, and then it amounts to nothing. And then <laughs> another wave of films kind of settle in. And then yet another wave of films. I was mentioning, I just yeah. heard uh, David Edelstein talking about how uh, Birdman is now kind of taking the lead ahead of Boyhood as the, the kind of favorite, and uh, I don't know what it'll be tomorrow. It's interesting about Gone Girl, you know, that there's a feeling in the industry that Gone Girl peaked too early, that they did the campaign. I mean, if, if, if you're seeing campaigns in the newspapers or you're seeing something in magazines or online about this is the hot film, I mean, it's that didn't just happen. That's a publicist has gotten it out. And the big game in Hollywood, of course, is when you do it. And in the case of Gone Girl, a lot of people think that that happened too soon. And, of course, the there's talk now about Boyhood being— That was an know, early release. That, yeah. that was yeah. an early release, and so people are sort of, you know, like, oh, they're looking for something new. Yeah. It's the constant looking for a sort of new sensation that mm-hmm. might shake up the field. And uh, you've got all of these competing publicists who want to convey different ideas and uh, somehow keep a film alive in the market, too. I mean, uh, there are lots of films that, uh, that that come into the market with a lot of buzz and then they don't do any business. Mm-hmm. And then the conundrum, of course, is how do you handle that if you're a publicist? Do you have, can you keep it in theaters long mm-hmm. enough? Can you 
do the re-release or yeah. do a re-release, yeah. take it out and bring it back. Yeah. You know, you notice a lot of films open in December in Los Angeles and New York to get the qualification, but then they save them until the Christmas Day or the first week in January, so that they then get the buzz then. But it's really always skating on the edge because you yeah. don't know what's going to really take off. And I think it's interesting that uh, Grand Budapest Hotel is still part of the language, as it were, mm -hmm. even though it's so far back. Right. That that's a film that's really succeeded without that kind of push. Mm -hmm. Well, can I um, add and then ask a question? Yes. Um, the the when you had said about the the timing of of when they go for the Oscars, I read something that was talking about how Marianne Cotillard they should have pushed it. They pushed it way too late, and had they waited, she would have had a better chance of winning. Yeah. So I mean, I think that maybe people are more aware of it now, but people don't understand what a business or what. A, an Oscar That's campaign right. is so oh, people yeah. think, oh, you just go to a movie and it's really good, and people just magically find you and you get nominated. And it is no. pretty it is pretty clear with mm. Selma, for example, that you know whatever else happened that was wrong, the the, the mechanics of that was handled wrong be, because so many of these people do watch it on the Blu-ray that they get, mm -hmm. and they didn't get their Blu-rays in time for right. nominations. And I mean, just this the stark mechanics mm -hmm. that you're talking about can uh, can. I want to ask you something, yeah. um, which is I noticed that you kind of gulped or made another one of your mother's uh, noises. <laughs> Uh, My when, mom's not listening. Yeah, I hope right when, now. When Sam <laughs> said something, said that he did he like Rosamund Pike in in Gone Girl because I think it speaks to well. Tell tell us why you gulped about that. Well, I I, I and. and uh Okay, so I will admit that uh, I will say that I I have I'm waving my judgment stick a little bit early, but only because it's such a it's such a a Hollywood movie in the sense of the way the the dragon tattoo. I mean, if there's a traditional Hollywood movie that's based off a book, because everything's based off of something these days, mm -hmm. it's that movie. So I think for me, um, knowing what he does, I'm just surprised that such a, a movie that's part of the machine. He's like, oh no. It was really great. I loved her. Um, and I guess it's a testament to her performance and her acting um, as opposed to what she's being part of. And David Fincher is a good director, so yeah, I agree with you. He's in the machine, but I don't see him as being yeah. part of it. I, I no. see, he likes to uh, kind of poke the machine with sticks. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and and I, I, th I think <laughs> one, of the, one of the problems for a lot of his movies, and it's definitely a problem, at least I think it's a problem for Gone Girl, you know, the Academy will forgive you for a lot of things, you know? And it, it I mean, even though it is this incredibly hidebound, straight jacket institution that's never particularly satisfying in the way that they process the kind of material that we're talking about. They'll forgive you for a lot of things, but I think misanthropy is one. I mean, I'm sure I can be proven <laughs> wrong with, with, with some, but, you know, there's a misanthropy at the heart of Gone Girl. I mean, David, Absolutely, Fitch, yeah. David Fincher doesn't <laughs> like people very much. No. He has a very low opinion of the human race. And no. at the end of that movie, that's the essential message. Yeah. There's absolutely nobody here that you should <laughs> <laughs> invest any faith in whatsoever. And I, I just don't know that the Academy, I mean, they'll, they'll look at a lot of, I mean, Birdman's a very crazy, uh, and I find. I thought very laudable movie, and it's kind of misanthropic too. But there is this sort of magical realism element of hope in it, which I, I think Fisher yes, doesn't yeah. deliver. You know? Well, I think it's kind of interesting. You mentioned Birdman because Inari too is a director. Um, Alejandro Inari too, the director, is is a, a person who, I mean, he really at at his heart, he's an art filmmaker. You know, he makes films that yeah. not that many people see that are really great. Um, and David Fincher is actually that. But I sort of he think is, yeah. that, that both 
David Fincher and Inyari too have maybe taken a look at what's happened with Christopher Nolan, mm. and that Christopher Nolan mm. basically got Warner Brothers to fork over the money for his pet project, which was Inception. Such a weird uh, film. How so yeah. Exactly. <laughs> he wanted to make this weird, complicated film that every Hollywood agent said, this is crazy because nobody will ever figure out that plot, and they'll be so angry at you, they yeah. won't you know, this film will fail. Well, it was a huge success, of course, and so he makes lots of money, and so he can then uh, go out and tell Paramount, oh, by the way, we need 66 IMAX film prints <laughs> to show Interstellar. And and I think that there's an attraction to that, that David Fincher uh, with, with Gone Girl is making a mainstream film, which is sort of contains that brand of misogyny in it uh, that is also aiming right at the heart of that sort of... I, I, it's kind of like reassuring thriller kind of thing. It's getting back to this reassurance mm -hmm. thing. It's a, it's a, it's more of a sort of sure thing to agents as well. Oh wait, you mean it's not a romantic comedy? <laughs> no. no. Well, I think no? It, I, I think well, it's you could read it that in way. In a way, <laughs> yeah. I I think it sort of is actually. In a way, yeah. I I actually do feel there is a moment in the movie. Well, first of all, the audience that I was in laughed a bit. Um, I mean, this goes back to James's point about seeing it with audiences. Always so interesting. Uh, when I saw No Country for Old Men, I was the only person laughing a lot all the way through this movie. <laughs> really? You know, I felt like a, I was in a Charles Adams cartoon or something. I, but but anyway, half there, the audience is horrified, and the other yeah, half wants right. to laugh but yeah. doesn't. And, and then, <laughs> and then but, you know, Colin. certainly, yeah, certainly <laughs> in Gone Girl, the, the moment where I mean, you know, without trying to do any spoilers here. There's sort of been a revelation of how completely evil and rotten to the core mm -hmm. everybody kind of is, and and there's uh, Ben Affleck walks into the kitchen in this beautiful you know just model house, and and Rosamund Pike is standing there just immaculately dressed, and there's this beautifully laid out sort of center island in the kitchen, and she goes crepes, you know, and she's got all these <laughs> she's got all the ingredients and the fruit and stuff, and I laughed really hard, you know, it was kind of like oh here's the worm in the uh, in the American apple, you know. It's like okay that. to. Spoil it for people at this point. Yeah, I think there's an expiration date on spoilers. Keeping the speed up, that it just keeps getting closer and closer. I think there's a two week uh, expiration date. And then you See, just go I for give it. it like a month. I give it like a month. I thought Gone Girl was essentially Rosemary's Baby. I mean, it was sort of about hmm. a relatively innocent person, or maybe a, a couple of relatively innocent people in the thrall of this completely evil <laughs> and, family. And, and actually, yeah. Rose, Rosemary's Baby is a perfect example of a movie that you couldn't have a spoiler. I right. mean, it's yeah. just by nature. You know what it is, and you knew the characters. I mean, I went like, to who's that. Who's the father? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. um, you know, one of the things we should quickly talk about, I mean, every year there are just these real controversies. And this year you didn't really have to go hunting very far to find the first controversy. I mean, there just aren't any actors of color nominated, uh, and Selma in particular seems to have taken uh, quite a hit, maybe because of the mechanics, maybe because of some other reason, maybe because the Academy does have a race problem, maybe who knows what. But, I mean... I also am fascinated by these other kind of almost manufactured – I think they're manufactured controversies. So one of the ones that came up <laughs> was that there might be something anti-Latino about boyhood because of this scene in which Patricia Arquette kind of you know, got, gets this yard guy and says, boy, you should go back to college. You're smart, yeah. Yeah, you're <laughs> smart, you know, and then he gets this he, – he comes up to her in a restaurant later and he's – the assistant manager or whatever he is at that point. Yeah, and he, yeah he, he is a manager. He's yeah. a manager. Yeah. He owes it all to her. You know, their their food's on him. And I, for some reason, that bothered people. I, and I, I couldn't really understand how, how but it, th then it was occasioned by another wave of people saying, well, somebody should talk about, you know, I can't say his name. Say his name for me again, the boy, the Birdman guy. Uh, he, 
Michael in, Keaton? No, no, the director. Of, oh, the director, in, uh, Alejandro Iñárritu. Yeah, Iñárritu uh, and Cuaron, that they don't make Latino movies anymore because of right. exactly what James was talking about. You know, they figured out there's all this money. <laughs> Their exit strategy. Freedom, you may, so right. that's who you really should be screaming at, not at Richard Linklater for... Uh, boyhood, and I thought, wow, it's like this is like an industry now on right. the web, right? They're just like they make; they're just looking for stuff, yeah. To, yeah, to bash people with. I think that that's that's something you always have to retain in perspective, and how really one person's comment and somebody seeing something that I mean, people are combing, looking for things really to make a conversation about sometimes, and these sites that I think it's a basic problem with the internet being advertising driven that oh, yeah. you're looking for clicks, and there's too and many so, of them out there, right? Exactly, and so you generate the clicks, however. You you might, but there's a lot of discussion uh, about films or about culture generally that really have substance and they're really interesting. But you also have to separate out things that are red herrings that don't really mean anything necessarily. I mean, the argument about Inyari 2 making a film about, you know, basically a, a has-been white actor, you know, it's like a sort of white environment that's is of the Broadway scene and stuff like that. But he's a great filmmaker who um, has made other kinds of films as well, but he's decided to do sort of mainstream things. Is that being racist? You know, or, uh, then racism itself has a lot of complexities about, you know, knowing what, what people's intent is and why they're doing things. And when you are creating something, uh, the, the, the Hollywood environment, which views race as a kind of commodity that is related to how much money will be made, um, it, it's something that uh, is part of that system that does have racist components. That's real, and that's different from uh, you know the Latino character in Boyhood. I think is actually a very interesting character, and it's mm -hmm. part of a very genuine film. That I and and somebody made the point that this guy played that role very very well, and actually brought out some subtleties about it that you know <laughs> actually made you think. Especially given the fact that you know more than half of the U.S. Congress right now, their only reaction would be to get that guy deported. Uh, exactly. <laughs> right. Vivian, what were you going to say? Um, I just think that it's also speaking to a larger issue because I think that because there's so few people who don't look a certain way, define that as you will, public radio audience that when you have one or two or three, unfortunately, they become everything for everybody. Yeah. And so it's unfortunate that it's not an environment where you can just be a filmmaker and make a film or just getting, a, I can't remember what I was listening to. I was listening to the Nerdist podcast. I never listened to that, by the way. But um, <laughs> Chris Hardwick. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and uh, so whoever he was talking to was saying, it's just amazing that films even get made and that you can start a project in five years and 10 years, you're still trying to get it done. But I think that these conversations about, you know, is this particular film being shafted because of this or is it because of that, that where the real issue is that if we're going to be um, making films and supporting films, we need to look at what that means and who is invited to the table. I think right. that's, that's they're different, they're mm. different ways of saying the same thing. And I think if there's yeah. a broader base, then there's a larger discussion about that. Absolutely. And it's about jobs in the industry. Exactly. It's about actually having the technicians and everybody right. on the film set. Plus, it means characters that are not race identified right. and that they're not, yeah. they're, they're not projecting culture by their presence. Or, I think, I think we're, we're, or it also means that you don't have just one Ava du DuVernay, that everybody yes, has an opportunity exactly. to be her. Or right. you don't have, you know, your one person that is allowed to ascend to the throne and then we got to wait till that person dies yeah, exactly. or fall <laughs> off the, you know, fall off the wagon. 
dragon. You don't have that one female director. You don't have that one. It's right. about making that opportunity available to everybody. I think, so I think Wesley Morris said was the one who said this week that uh, you know he was happy to see Lupita Nyong'o win a Best Supporting Actress award last year, but he wants to see. Lupita Nyong'o win a Best Supporting Actor Award or act, uh, or Best Actor Award as a CEO or something. <laughs> right. you know? I mean, right. exactly. and that's the race specific thing that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, before we run out of time, Sam, uh, and I turned to I turned to you especially. One thing I brought up in my emails is I sometimes wish there were other categories. Yeah, you know, there are certain things that you wind up liking over the course of a year that you just know don't fit into any kind of template or narrative that the Academy would consider. Um, I mean, I gave as my example, the performance of Jake Gyllenhaal in, in Nightcrawler, where you just know he's not going to win Best Actor. He but it's can't. notable. Yeah. yeah. You sort of wish there was some way of honoring, like, yeah. I'm sure you have, like, a, a whole list of those kinds of things or, or those kinds of performances or movies. Oh, and on Culture Dogs, we have our own little uh, sub-Oscars called the Woofies, and one of the, you know, the, the categories, because we get to make up our own categories, is, <laughs> you know, Best Comedy or Wrestling Film, or, you know, the, the Ben Affleck film that stunk the least every... I, I'd like to see a uh, like a Charles Bronson kind of award for all the Liam Neeson films that come out that are identical every year. Uh, and then you there's could throw in. Uh, yeah, there's a new one now. Yeah. You saw the commercial? Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's a new one. And then you oh, could throw God, in maybe knows. Denzel Washington from The Equalizer and uh, maybe Three Days to Kill with Costner in that. But they, uh, they give that Charles Bronson award. Um, but yeah, that'd be great. It'll, it'll mix it up a little bit. Get some. Uh, the, I'd like to see. Uh, I don't know. No, uh, I like. I'd like to see just some awards for films that aren't even more closer to what the Golden Globes has. At least something that's a little bit more comedy based, mm-hmm. as opposed to just uh, animated and live action. I'd love to see a way that a film like Snowpiercer could get nominated for something. The um, and James, I think another thing that's endangered, or, or that they're going to have to deal with at some point. I mean, you know, as a society. Ideal, our ideal confluence and the confluence we, we, we've been trying to make over the last few decades is to judge the work of everybody kind of on the same platform. So, you know, why wouldn't you compare Meryl Streep to Daniel Day-Lewis? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's sort of interesting that the Oscars is, is they're, 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 you know, angling to be the last place in the world where the work of men and the work of women is considered separately. And even now, as we're having also these big debates about transgender pronouns and people who aren't that comfortable being either he or she, somebody's going to be nominated who's like that, you know? Was, exactly. And you just wonder how much longer can sex segregation hold out or gender segregation hold out in the Oscars? Well, I think that that's part of the orthodoxy of the academy and the industry itself, um, which is not inclined to take risks. And I think it goes back, for instance, going back to Jake Gyllenhaal's performance in Nightcrawler, which to me was the very essence of cinema. And uh, I can see it being um, something that plays for weeks and weeks uh, in, in in certain areas where people sort of find this film. It, it has a sense of the ethos. Uh, it, it's very critical of certain established uh, sort of business procedures in Los Angeles and elsewhere. Uh, it, it has a character, who I mean, a, a, an actor who's willing to completely transform himself into, a, into this character. Um, and it's something that sort of breaks out of the norm, and there is no sort of place for that. And, and the orthodoxy of race and gender and, and exactly sort of bean counting, really, is that's the problem, I think, with the system as it exists. And it's not just in, um, in Hollywood. I think it's the way that films are shown, the way that films are distributed. Um, I think you have... Um, large uh, large operations really which are involved in selling food that 
actually happen to show <laughs> movies as a, a you know just by chance and maybe that'll bring in some people who buy the food and and so you have a kind of distorted marketplace that is guarded by people who have a very orthodox point of view who do see division between race and by, between the gender i mean they will have no idea to deal with transgender issues they will have no idea to it'll take years for that to actually come to the surface it'll take somebody eloquent to break out of that who has a who, who who has a voice and so it's something that you've got to fight against and it's very laggard to the general culture i think speaking of the categories yeah. i think you should do the food distribution that should be <laughs> awarded <laughs> uh, you know most effective usage of skittles that kind of thing and, yeah. maximum well, number of skittles per performance. <laughs> exactly exactly what you're going to say you'll get the no, last well, word let, in this well segment. let's be honest though if we didn't segregate by category there would be no women nominated i'm just going to say it that way because you know what i'm the oscar grinch today all right you are <laughs> <gonna be awesome. laughs> I all am. right uh, we're going to do some endorsements uh, here uh, at the end so we'll take a little break so we'll have time for that we'll be back And the Oscar for best phone answering on a radio show goes to Sissy Spacek. Betsy Kaplan didn't get it. That is a total shock. And here comes Kanye. Back, Kanye. This is neither the time nor the place. Today's show was produced by Colin and me, Kyone Wolf. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Walter Brennan. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff doing the You Was My Brother, Charlie speech from On the Waterfront, visit our website, WNPR.org. On Monday's show, the scramble breaks down the news of the weekend. And now, back to Colin. You know, one of the, uh, Betsy Kaplan, by the way, who is answering the phones today, and there hasn't been one call, but one of the um, (laughs) disturbing things about autofill is that when you're trying to look up something about Charlie, you was my brother, you keep getting, uh, Google keeps trying to get you to Charlie bit my finger, the, you know, uh, which is an indication that our civilization is in decline. Uh, All right, so uh, time for endorsements. James, what have you got? Uh, Two things. Um, First of all, um, there's a new edition of Stefan Zweig's story, The World of Yesterday, from 1942, which is the basis of uh, of the uh, film, the Wes Anderson film. And uh, it's really extraordinary. It's worth reading. It's about the time uh, in Europe before, just as the Nazis were rising, but... um, it's something that uh, is, is extraordinarily well written about being complacent and thinking that everything is fine and not taking action when perhaps you should and being aware of what's around you. And I think that's a really, um, a, a really uh, a remarkable theme to, that's relevant to us now. And the other thing is a wild and crazy comedy at Cine Studios starting on Sunday and actually running through Thursday called The Passionate Thief um, with the great Anna Magnani. And uh, if you ever saw a big deal on Madonna Street uh, from the s- roughly the same period, it's the same director, uh, Mario Monicelli, and uh, it's a, a, it's an incredible performance, an incredible snapshot of a time in the '60s um, in uh, of Italian comedy at, at its at its height, a, a 
absolutely amazing restoration that is really well worth seeing. And just see stuff at Trinity Cine Studio. And they've got Foxcatcher coming in very soon, too. Vivian, what have you got? Uh, well, I'm going to be uh, self-promotional because that's how I roll. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm going to endorse myself. So as you know, omusono.com, O-M-U-S-O-N-O.com. You can get cute stuff. Colin can tell you. Yeah. And then it, Afri- African-themed and African imports. Yeah. And everything's handmade, so you're not supporting the man mm. unless you want to. Right. But, um, yeah, so... It's, re- it's really great, by the way. I did buy a lot of Christmas presents uh, there, and people loved everything they got. So Thank you. It was good. Uh, Sam, what have you got? I think I'll endorse a couple of uh, documentaries uh, quickly that did not get nominated for Best uh, Documentary Feature. Uh, Jodorowsky's Dune is a fascinating <laughs> making of a film that never got made in the 70s, an adaptation of Frank Herbert's Dune, which later David Lynch uh, notoriously turned into something in the 80s. Uh, but, yeah, a really fascinating film that you know, had uh, input from H.R. Giger and other luminaries, and, yeah, I think you can find that streaming now. And also another documentary called As the Palaces Burn, which is this just fascinating um, film that ter- evolves into another film. It's, it's essentially a, a, a a fan expose of fans of this one uh, hard rock band. And when they go to Czechoslovakia, the band is detained and the lead singer is accused of murdering a fan two years prior uh, by pushing him off the stage. And it becomes this amazing legal morass and uh, really, really intense film. And finally, uh, The Man in the High Castle, the, the Amazon pilot, uh, Philip K. Dick adaptation. Check that out if you can. Really? Yeah. All right. Uh, great uh, endorsements. Uh, I will once again remind you uh, that on Sunday night, if you're not listening to the Culture Dogs or seeing the movie that James is showing or at home ordering uh, a new handbag from Omusono, uh, you can go to the Oscar party. It's at the Spotlight Theaters. It uh, supports AIDS Connecticut. It's a great cause. You can get online and read more about it. And it's really a fun party, too. Uh, and a lot of people from the news uh, are going to be there. Um, also, including Vivian Abed, apparently. Um, <laughs> tonight, not that I'll be there, I don't think, but um, for, I'll, I just want to endorse, first of all, the uh, um, incredible Irish music uh, program that's done at the University of Hartford that our friend Steve Dietrich does, uh, and Celtic Airs, I think it's called. Uh, and tonight, there's a band called Socks in the Frying Pan, which is uh, sounds like a great name for a Dublin band, uh, and I've been checking them out on YouTube. They're, they really do look, look like they're a lot of fun. They do everything from um, Irish uh, trad to uh, Guy Clark tunes and stuff like that. However, it turns out not everybody in my life enjoys Irish music quite as much as I do. Uh-huh. There's always this sort of stony silence when I say, hey, how about this? <laughs> <laughs> Nobody really says no. They just nobody really says yes. Do they e- run either. away? They just shuffles quietly. <laughs> they slowly move yeah. into another direction. And then very quickly, I know I keep pushing this, but it's going to be a lot more fun if more people do it. Uh, the Morning News, the website, The Morning News, is running a tournament of books on March sixth. Uh, we're going to do the news about the tournament of books. Uh, they do it as if it's the March Madness uh, NCAA basketball tournament, but it's all recent literary fiction. So get on the Morning News, check that out, read some of those books because you'll have more fun when we do. You think that you can be an actor, see Mr. Factor, he'd make a monkey look good. Within a half an hour, you'll look like Tyrone Power. Hooray for Hollywood. Reese Witherspoon from Wild is up for an Oscar, and that really sticks in my craw. I do heroin once and get lost for 45 minutes in an Arby's, but does anybody make a movie about it? No. Scratch Arby's heroin joke. 